All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode eight of The Populist. This time, we are going to talk about legislatures. Okay, so those that make the laws. I mean, they do more than that, but um, that's one of their key functions. Um, If you haven't already listened to episode seven, Constitutions, with Dr. Sean Amian, make sure that you do that beforehand. And also, obviously, you want to understand the information just to understand it, but peek ahead to that uh, reflection question that is due at the end of week seven, And think about that because how you would structure a legislature and especially the voting, uh, the voting system that you would put in is going to be really important. And one of the questions that you're you're definitely going to have to answer in that uh, reflection question. But in this episode, we're going to talk about what legislatures are, what they do, uh, the different types of legislatures. What are the different electoral systems? Now, most of these are going to be covered in the videos. I'm going to briefly go through them, but I found a series of videos that does a really, really good job of laying out the different types of uh, electoral systems that can be implemented. Um, and then we're going to look at uh, what's the relationship between legislatures and, the, and executive legislature relations. And you'll talk about the, more in depth in the, uh, the executive branch next week. And then finally, what explains certain patterns of uh, representation? All right, so let's dive in. And the first thing we're going to do is talk about what are legislatures. And what these are, are, these are an assembly or body of representatives with the authority to make laws, usually in the form of a parliament, an assembly, a congress. In the United States, we have congress. In the UK or Portugal or Spain or Italy, they've got parliaments. Japan's got a parliament. Um, so, and, and these, this branch of the government or the legislature, its rise or the, the incorporation of this into a f- part of the government is really key and is central to the story of the emergence of constitutional and democratic regimes. Because if we think about it throughout most of history, as I've said in previous episodes, um, the executives traditionally had control. All right. These are kings, emperors, sultans, queens, uh, you know, presidents. They they've generally had control. All right. And through time, legislatures took more control from the traditional executives like kings or emperors. All right. Um and early legislatures, it's important to note, were not really that representative. Okay, everybody learned about the Magna Carta and and things things in ancient Rome and places like that. But the Magna Carta really only involved King John and the nobles, and the nobles wanting a little bit more power. Okay, so only this certain class of people would actually have a say in what was going on outside of uh, the royalty. And in Rome... You know, they sure they had a republic, but it included only male property owners and upper class patricians. Um, if if your country or nation was colonized, you had little to no say in what was going on, even if the colonizers created a legislature. All right, so this is really similar to the types of legislatures that might be found in an authoritarian regime today, okay, where you're only really getting a small subset of the population that's able to participate and 
really take part in decision making. I mean, a good example in the book points this out is um, in China. You know, they've got a legislature and you know, but to participate, you have to be in the official communist party. And we'll get into that more when we talk about authoritarian regimes. But it's only the small subset generally that has had the opportunity to participate in these uh, legislatures until more recently. Okay, I mean, think about it in the, in the United States, uh, you know, women didn't have the, the right to vote until when, 1920, 1919. Um, you know, and then the Voting Rights Act wasn't until the 60s. Okay, but through time, more people came to get voting rights. Okay, this includes women, ethnic and racial minorities, and men of social or of lower social and economic status. All right. Um, so it's only really in the last hundred years that we've seen people um, be able to we've seen the majority of the population actually be able to vote and to hold office. Okay. And I mean, just in a couple examples of, of the legislatures, U S Congress, uh, British and Japanese parliaments. And there, so the con Congresses are generally going to be with, um, presidential systems and then parliaments, uh, are going to to be in the parliamentary system, which we'll talk a little bit more about. All right, so the next question is, what do legislatures do? All right, and usually these legislatures have wide-ranging powers. In a place like the United States, it was created to be the most powerful branch of government. In places that have parliamentary systems, a lot of times the executive and the legislature are actually fused into one branch, which gives them sometimes, a lot of times, even more power than Congress in a presidential sense. Okay, but included in these powers is they're going to represent the citizens. Okay, and they're going to vote and debate on legislation. They've got control over spending, often referred to as power of the purse. They oversee the executive. They can demand certain information. Um, I believe that I was I was just seeing in the news with the the recent killing of the the journalist in uh, Turkey by Saudi Arabia that the Congress has demanded that President Trump get a, do a report do research and and report back to them on the findings. Okay, so they can request certain types of information. Um, they also have the power to remove the executive. If you're in a parliamentary system, this is a vote of no confidence. Okay, so everybody votes on whether or not the prime minister, basically whether they have confidence in them. And they've, they've got different rules, but if a certain threshold is met, then they're basically voted out of, out of office and the government collapses and this can lead to new elections. It, it, it's specific to different places because different countries are going to have different rules. Some places will have rules like, well, if you're going to have a vote of no confidence, there also has to be some kind of an agreement for the, the president, or not the president, but the government to continue on how that's going to look before you can even do this. Other places, it just collapses and... Um, when we say the government collapses, we're not talking about the regime. I want to be clear about that. Uh, but when the government collapses, then elections are two months, three months down the road, and you have another election, and you'll get a new government. 
Okay. Um, in the presidential system, you can impeach a president, which we saw with um, President Clinton. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk of uh, some people saying that if the Democrats win back the House, that impeachment would be on the table. But, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, and then another function of legislatures is that they socialize politicians into the way of the system. Okay, because you don't just go to Parliament or go to Congress and automatically know what you're doing. Know what you're doing. All right, there's ways of things being done for a long time, and you get socialized into how that works. And so this often what it what it uh, turns into, or not turns into, but one of the things that it does is it's kind of a training ground for future executives. You know, especially in parliamentary systems where the party leadership controls who can run and who's on what list. Uh, you know, a lot of times future prime ministers get their start in the legislature, move their way up. Uh, and a lot of times in presidential systems, they'll be a member of Congress. And, you know, I mean, President Obama was a senator from Illinois and he he got elected in. Um, so so it can be this training ground for future executives. All right. Um, the next question or next topic to really get into is, well, what are the types of legislatures? And legislatures can be called many different names. We've got Congress. We've got Parliament. It can be called a House. It can be called a Chamber. It can be called an Assembly. All right. So there's all these different names. They're all referring to the legislature. Um, and a legislature generally has two forms. It can be unicameral meaning that there's only one chamber, all right? And this is, is generally found in places with smaller and more homogenous populations. Um, I was recently in Ireland and Portugal, and both of those places, they've got just one chamber in their parliament, and that's where the decision-making happens and the debate happens and the laws are made. Okay, and then when you get to a lot of countries that, that might be a little bit bigger or really big, if you're talking about like the U.S., Brazil, Mexico, places like that, is you get into bicameral legislatures. All right. And this has two chambers. And most of, of you that uh, have taken, you know, U.S. government classes and stuff know this. Bicameral legislatures kind of hammered into you from the time that, uh, you know, you're in grade school. But it's got two chambers, and these chambers they can they can have equal or unequal powers. It's just going to to depend. All right, the lower chamber is usually the one whose composition is more reflective of the population at large. So if you think about the United Kingdom, their House of Commons or the U.S. House of Representatives. All right, and this house typically has more authority. All right, the the upper chamber is usually smaller in size, but it represents larger geographic constituencies like states here in the US or provinces. Generally, it's going to have less power. Um, the US Senate is an exception when it comes to to the power that they they have uh, most places so in Germany the upper chamber is limited on what they can vote on they can only vote on certain things um in the UK the house of lords has even fewer powers it's pretty much in uh formality at this point 
which is is interesting because that was the chamber that was created first because that was where the nobles and everybody were. But eventually the House of Commons has come to, to have more and more of the authority. All right, so so even further comparing these these two models of parliament and Congress, usually Congresses are one of the branches of the government that is designed as a check and balance on the executive branch. And this is because the head of government, the president, is separately elected from the legislature. Okay, whereas in a parliament, their executives depend on parliament to legislate and retain their position. And this is because their head of government is elected by parliament and not the people directly. Okay, so instead of it being a check and balance the way that a presidential system would be, the parliament and so you're getting the fusion of the legislative and the executive branch. But what that means is that the prime minister usually is is elected by the parliament and therefore depends on their confidence in order to do their legislative agenda and get things done. All right. And on page 207 in your book, there's a really good overview of the common attributes of Congresses and parliaments in Table 9.1, and it compares the U.S. and the United Kingdom. Okay, so just running through that real quick, like the U.S. head of government is a president. Parliament can be prime minister, premier, chancellor. In the U.S., the head of government is separately elected by the voters. In, a, in the U.K.'s parliament, they're selected by the parliament. Um you know, in Congress, the executive does not depend on the con- confidence of Congress. Okay, the president and the executive can ki- not really do what they want, but they're not beholden to them. Their their mandate is different because they were uh, elected separately from the legislature, whereas the executive in the parliamentary system depends on the confidence of Parliament. All right. In a Congress, there's a separation of powers between Congress and the executive. In the parliament, the executive is fused with the parliament. Checks on supremacy, you know, I've, as I just said, the checks and balances between the different branches in, in the U.S. Constitution, whereas in the U.K.'s parliament, the parliament is supreme by the Constitution. Okay. Um, and, and that's just the way that they've, they've set the rules up. Uh, strong versus limited executive. The executive is limited by separation and checks uh, in the United States. But in parliament, if you've got especially a single party majority, the executive may dominate the law, the lawmaking. Okay. In the United Kingdom, if you've got one party in control, like what happened with uh, Maggie Thatcher in the eighties, you know, she had things that she wanted to do. She had a majority in parliament and she got it done. Whereas, you know, Reagan kind of tried similar things in the United States, but he w- he had to battle people in the Democratic Party as well as his own party. Okay, and then Congresses are usually uh, bicameral, but they can be either. And parliaments, it, it just varies country to country. Okay, um, so... All right, so the next part is talking a little bit about electoral systems, and these are really, really important, especially when it comes to your reflection question, um, and there's, there's many different types. 
So make sure not only that you're listening to this and that you're watching the videos, because absolutely watch the videos, but also do the reading in the book. Um, so because the, the videos are going to go through a lot of the nitty-gritty details, I'm just going to go through a few points here when talking about electoral systems. So usually what what you have is kind of either a district system or proportional representation or a mixed and hybrid system or like a, a vote ranking. So, so in the district system, there's usually some territory. I mean, a good example is think of the uh, House of Representatives or the Senate in the United States. Okay, you have a territory and people run. There's usually only one representative. And most common is the single-member district. All right, so you divide the country up into districts. Every district elects one legislator, one legislator, um, and they usually use the first past the post or plurality system. So basically, the candidate with the most votes wins. But they can also do a runoff. So, so the way a runoff might work is, say, you've got four candidates, and nobody gets more than fifty percent of the vote. Then there'll be another election a week or two later where it's only the top two candidates. So by definition, somebody has to get more than 50% of the votes. All right. Now, they can also do multi-member districts where more than one representative is elected. And the reason, a reason you would want to do this is that it can allow smaller parties to be represented. And it can also change the makeup of the legislature. And if you go, and especially the video on the problems with uh, first past the post or the, the proportional representation, then um, you know watch those videos because those are really, really good. Um, and it, that'll lay out exactly how that can change the makeup of the legislature. So another way you can do it is uh, proportional representation. And here, it's just like it says, seats are allocated based on the proportion of votes. And there's usually a threshold, like, you know, uh, so-and-so's crazy party that got seven votes doesn't get a seat or a portion of a seat. There's usually a threshold, like you have to receive 5% of the votes in a certain, in a certain district to then get, be able to uh, represent that district. Okay. Um, but it is based on or proportion of votes. So if you've got six parties and four of them get over the 5% threshold, um, you know, then it's the percentage. They try to get it as close to that percentage as they can. And within this, there's, there's a couple different ways to do this. So there's what's called an open list PR. PR just meaning proportional representation. And on this... So people will vote for individuals, and the votes per party, so each individual has a party, but you vote for the person, and then the votes per party are tallied, and then the seats get distributed based on how well the party did. All right, so it's not predetermined who is on the list. That is what is called a closed list PR, where the party is going to say, okay, here's our list of candidates. If your name's at the top, you'll be the first one in Parliament, second, third, fourth, all the way down. The open list, it depends on who actually gets voted for more times, but it's also based on the individual as opposed to 
the close list where you wouldn't actually vote for the person. You would go in and you would vote Green Party or Labor Party or Republican Party or Conservative Party um, in in that way. All right. Um, and then there's also what's known as a mixed and hybrid system. Again, the videos will go into a lot of details with this, but it's basically combining certain features of proportional representation with geographical representation. A couple places that do this would be Germany and New Zealand. And then the the last kind of voting system that I wanted to talk about is one where voters rank candidates. So, there's a thing called the alternative vote, and it basically reallocates votes of low-ranking candidates. So if, if your first choice happened to be somebody that got 2% of the vote, they would go to your second choice, okay, and, and so on down the line. That way it it didn't completely – your your vote isn't wasted in the same way that like in the U.S. if you vote third party and they've got no chance of winning, uh, your vote – doesn't count in the same way. Um, And then there's another one called single transferable vote. So they reallocate surplus votes of winning candidates. Okay, so once they reach a certain threshold that, you know, the extra votes of of that winning candidate go towards whoever was, uh, was ranked below them. All right, so... The last couple things to talk about here are executive legislative relations and then getting into explaining patterns of representation. So the executive legislative relations is referring to the relationships between the executive and the legislative branches of government. All right. In parliamentary systems, executive and legislatures are generally close because of the fusion of the two branches of government. All right, this isn't necessarily the case in a presidential system, although this is going to vary depending on who the president is and uh, just the makeup of of the legislature. All right, Um, but think think of this in terms of legislatures can oversee the executive. All right, so, so the review or approval of executive appointments has to go through the legislature. I mean, think about uh, the appointment of judges, the appointment of certain people in a cabinet needs to get approved by the legislature. And then, as I talked about earlier, legislatures may, re- may remove the executive from office. And in a parliamentary system, this is vote of no confidence, presidential system, impeachment. Okay, so here's the kind of the different ways that the, the two branches uh, are related and how they, they interact. All right, and then getting into the patterns of representation. Okay, so we'll talk about patterns of representation, the electoral systems and representation, as well as legislative decision-making and representation, and executive legislative relations and how that affects representation of the people. So I've, I've said representation like eight times in the last 30 seconds. So what are we talking about when we say representation? We're basically talking about public officials acting on behalf of the citizenry. This is often done through elections, but how to do this is re- is debated and you know is a great debate if you're out with your friends on a, a Friday night how they should 
actually carry out this representation because you've got the mandate approach and the independent approach. So the mandate approach says that elected officials are going to follow public opinion as a reflection of interests or views of the citizenry. Okay, so you basically look at public opinion and you vote the way that these polls come back. Now, the downside is this is that public opinion tends to be erratic and it's always changing. So the the criticism would be that representatives also need to look beyond what's just popular right now because it's likely to change in the future and they need to to kind of be a little bit more responsible than somebody that got called on the, on the phone on a Thursday night and told some pollster whatever was on their mind in that moment. Okay, so so you've got the mandate approach, and then you've got the independence approach, where officials exercise discretion or basically their own judgment once they're elected. All right, so they, they run and they take it as, look, people put me in here to do what I think is best. Now, the, the kind of flip side to this is that you can't go too far from what public opinion or what your constituents want. Because if you do, then you're not fulfilling promises, and then you'll be voted out of office. Okay, so but but these are really the two approaches to to kind of patterns of representation and what those who are elected should be doing. You know, should they be following public opinion, or should they kind of take it as well? I got elected, and they trust me to do what I think is best. Okay, so that's a debate that is is unsettling. You have different elected officials who even interpret that in different ways. Okay, so the the next part of representation is electoral systems. So how seats and legislatures are divided up has consequences. All right, so the apportionment of seats by geographic constituencies is going to affect representation in, in a bunch of different ways. So many countries have some degree of malapportionment. Okay, and this is a portionment in which voters are unequally represented in the legislature. Okay, think of it as how much um, the electoral system deviates from the one person, one vote. Uh, that principle that that is kind of the bedrock of a lot of democracy is one person, one vote. Well, how far away from it is that? And examples is is a lot of times you can get more legislators per capita in low population areas and fewer legislators per capita in higher population areas. Um, I mean, a great example is the U.S. Senate. I mean, if you think about it, um, you know, California has the same number of senators as Wyoming and both North and South Dakota. Um, Vermont, tiny little Vermont, has the same amount of senators as Texas, whose senators are more likely to be uh, Republican. So... So you, you've got it kind of on both sides there, but um, you know this more more often than not, this is going to occur in uh, upper chambers. So like the Senate, I mean in Brazil, they've got three senators per district. So they've got one district that has 41 million people. They get three senators. Um, and they've got another district that's got 400,000 people. They get three senators. So that's what we're talking about with this malapportionment. Okay. Um, lower houses, 
um, tend to have more issues around like the the shape and inclusivity of districts. I used to think of gerrymandering in the U.S., uh, but how these districts are designed, are they meant to exclude certain groups from voting or from to carve out a, a place where a certain party is going to have an advantage? Um, this has less to do with apportionment, so it's not that um, you know the voters are unequally represented, but it has it has more to do with the shape and inclusivity. It's not apportionment because all districts should be relatively the same size. And as I said before, think of gerrymandering. Okay, uh, that's those are issues for for the lower houses. Um, so the the PR system, the proportional representation system, apportions seats according to the proportion of votes for each party. Um, you know, a pro of this is that votes are not "quote unquote" wasted in districts where they don't affect the outcome in the legislature. All right, public representation also does not provide voters with le- with legislators that specifically represent their geographic constituency. Okay, so this is kind of one of the the downsides is if you were to take, say, we wanted to make Oregon a proportional representation state in the state legislature. Well, you would vote for your party or depending if it was open list or closed list, but you would vote for that party, but there's no guarantee that um, one of the people that would get in is really from where you're from. Okay, there's no single identifiable legislator that might represent the people there. Uh, voters may not know who to actually direct their demands to. You know, they may have to go to the party headquarters and or give them a call or send an email and have to go through a bunch of hoops. And um, as I said, there's not necessarily represent, representation of local interests. So going back, I guess it, it, going back to the Oregon case, um, if we were to try and do that, but everybody from one party was from Portland then if you live in rural southeast Oregon, you know, how much in common does somebody in Portland have with, with you in southeast Oregon? Or if you're from Grants Pass or, or wherever. Um, this isn't necessarily the case, but this is one of the, the critiques of it. Okay, so moving on. Um, legislative decision-making and representation. All right, so, so the rules in each legislature how they're made up, and how the functioning of everyday business occurs is going to affect how decisions are made and how they conduct their business. Okay, so in some places you might get major roles falling to committees. So, I mean, as you as politics became more professionalized, there's been more and more creation of these committees to try and get specialized knowledge. So you have a judicial committee and an armed forces committee and foreign relations committee and all of these, these different, different committees. So when this happens and these major rules fall to the committees, who gets on the committee might actually be more important than each individual vote in the assembly. And this is because... When you're, when you're in a committee, if you control the agenda 
of what happens on that committee and what actually gets put up for vote, that gives you more power than the people that are not in that committee that may have to vote on it if it comes to the floor of the of the assembly or the parliament or um, you know which whichever term you want to use. And in addition to the rules of each legislature and the committees, political party discipline also matters. Okay, so the the extent to which all members of a political party are on the same page and disciplined in how they vote. All right, in some cases, party leaders may be, may be able to control the votes of those in their party. Elsewhere, individuals individual legislators can vote however they want. And what really matters here is the candidate nomination rules. All right, so if party if you have a system that is very party centered, a lot of uh, parliamentary systems tend to be this way. The where the party controls who gets on the ballot. So if parties can control who gets on the ballot as a candidate, then your individual legislators are going to be less likely to vote against the party. It's going it's going to go against them in the future. It's going to hurt their chances of being put on these lists to get into parliament if they're not voting with the party because they don't control whether or not they're on that list. All right. And then if you get candidate-centered systems, then the the voters choose who's who's the party nominee. So I mean, think of the primary system in the United States. All right, so the the Democrat or Republican party can formally back some back one of their candidates in the primary, but that doesn't mean that everybody in that party has to vote for that person. Okay, so party leaders are going to have less leverage over who the candidate is going to be. And if you're a congressman from Pennsylvania and you don't like what uh, your party is doing, you don't have to vote with them. They've got very little leverage over your electoral fate in the next election cycle. Okay, so getting towards the end here, I wanted to talk a little bit more about executive legislative relations. So... The relative powers of executives and legislatures are going to affect representative politics. The formal branches of government are going to matter. So legislatures have the power through the vote of no confidence in the executive, which can bring the government down. And in a, par- in a parliamentary system, this is going to give legislators more leverage with the executives. Okay, um, and also, I mean, in the presidential system, you've got the the impeachment process, okay? But it, you know, that's saved for for truly extraordinary circumstances, or at least it should be. Um, but legislatures can have certain leverage over the the executive, depending on on the context. All right, and then. Um, Partisan powers of executives are going to matter as well. So going back to a lot of like the the party discipline stuff and the you know how party centric a system is. So executives in PR systems are more likely to control the careers of legislators through controlling the party list. Who gets put on the list to be elected if their party gets certain percentage of the vote? Whereas legislators chosen in primaries often vote more independent, 
in this we see in more of your district systems. All right, but now don't I've talked a lot about the votes of no confidence and impeachment and things like that. It doesn't mean that the legislature is always using votes of no confidence as leverage over the prime minister. Okay, and it doesn't lead to constant turnover in the executive and parliamentary systems. This is used strategically um, and in order to maybe check the executive or in places where they really don't have any confidence in the executive and they want a new government. And sometimes it's advantageous to do that if you see that uh, that your ratings are up in the polls or if the executive is not living up to their end of the bargain, maybe you're in a coalition government and they're not supporting some of the things that they said they would, then you can use a no confidence vote. But again, it doesn't, it's not like the parliamentary systems are constantly turning over their governments. And also, it doesn't mean that there's no leverage for executives and presidential systems. We'll talk more of that next week when we have uh, Dr. Craig Parsons on the podcast. So, okay, so I think this about wraps it up for talking about legislatures. Make sure that you are watching the videos and doing the readings and that you're doing listening to the other podcast with uh, our guest lecturer, uh, Dr. Shauna Meehan. So recapping what we went through today, we, we answered a number of questions or at least went through them. We, we looked at what legislatures are, what legislatures do. And the different types of legislatures. Uh, talked a little bit about the different electoral systems, but again, those covered in more detail in the videos. Um, we looked at the, what is the relationship between legislatures and executive legislative relations. And then what, what explains patterns of representation? Okay, so again, as always, if anything is not clear or I'm referencing things that you're not sure about, use the comments section below this. Ask questions. I'll be on there to answer them and you know answer your, your fellow students back if, if you know the answer to it. But until next time, have a good one. Mm-hmm.